Okay, I think we are ready to go and good morning one and all once again and thank the Lord for those who are tuning in and we thank the Lord for the message that is given me to share and before we go any further let's go before him and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father Lord we come before your holy throne again this morning to honor you. Thank you for this time that you've granted us to one more time come around the matters of Christ and learn from the scriptures the testimony of Christ, even from the book of Exodus. And we know that these scriptures testify of him and his work of salvation, the salvation of his people, of whom we are, as testified by the Holy Spirit to us by way of faith. We pray now for understanding. May you grant ears to hear to those who have gathered around this message, for whom this message was given. We honor you, we glorify you in all things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. I think we are good to go. And we are in Exodus this morning. And for the next few weeks, I believe we're going to go all the way to Exodus 13. And then after that, we'll go to Romans. And we can always come back to Exodus to continue with the testimony of Christ from there. But what we are doing here is to preach the gospel of Christ. Because all scriptures testify of him from Genesis to Revelation. The story is about Christ, just as all of creation testify of Christ. There's not a single thing that does not bear witness to the person and work of Christ. So may the Lord help us. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 4, but we won't get there just yet but I'll give you the titles of our message. We have three titles. Number one, which will carry the message, is I'll kill your firstborn son. I'll kill your firstborn son. And number two, this is a long one, the men who sought your life are dead. The men who sought your life are dead. And number three, a husband of blood. A husband of blood. And that is saying that our message can be carried by any of those titles. They reflect the gospel content that is in this chapter of Exodus. And this is how we begin by way of remembrance from our last message, the angel of the Lord who is holy, he has identified himself as such, also identified himself as God, has come down. He specifically says to Moses, I have come down. So he has identified himself and defined his mission defined his purpose for coming and the problem for which he alone has come as the solution. 
he has come in answer to a particular problem of which he is the solution to that problem. And for that, we'll go to Exodus 3, beginning at verse 7 and 8. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. This is what the angel of the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So there we are being told of the mission, the purpose of the coming of the Savior, to bring his people out of one situation to another situation, which is much better. That is salvation. So how did he define the problem? He said, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, in this place called Egypt. There's oppression that his people are going through because of their captivity, because of slavery. Egypt has them under bondage because of Pharaoh's decree, which decree we determined was God's decree, as the king was only a type of God, and God was working his decree through Pharaoh. And unfortunately, many tend to moralize these stories and they end up with a hatred of Pharaoh that is unfounded because they're failing to read these stories in the proper way as gospel testimonies. God is not interested in us knowing about Pharaoh. That's not the point. God is teaching us and is unfolding the story of our salvation in this drama. God is he who wrote the script and he empowered the actors. He also raised the actors in the story. His people have come into bondage in Egypt as a picture of how his elect have also come under bondage to sin and death. That's the significance of Egypt. The bondage. In Egypt, there's been before a great famine, and now there is slavery. And in both cases, a God-appointed mediator was the solution. Joseph was the solution to the great famine, and now Moses is being raised to be the solution for this bondage. And those are all gospel pictures. And we know that we could never tell the gospel testimony correctly as long as we detach ourselves from the understanding of the relationship between sin, law, and death. 
the triangle of death. We call that the triangle of death. And that is coming from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. It's a very, very important verse that that is not understood. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 is very fundamental to a proper understanding of the relationship between law and grace. This is what Paul says. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. So we have three things there. We have sin, we have law, and we have death. So where one of those things is, the rest follow. Where there's law, there must needs be sin. And where there's sin, there must needs be death in the context of the life in Egypt in the context of life in Adam. That is how they relate in the context of life in Adam. Once you have sin, once you have law, you're going to have death. Sin and law always produce death. That's how they relate to one another. And that is what the slavery in Egypt is telling us. This is not just slavery for Cheap labor's sake. Because Pharaoh wanted to build pyramids and railway lines and highways to connect all of Africa. That's not what he was doing with that. No, it was God giving us a physical picture of sin and law and the manner of deliverance from his dominion from his judgment, from his condemnation, how do you come out of Egypt? How does one come out of Egypt? How does one escape sin and its condemnation? How do you escape death? That's what the angel of the Lord is saying, I have come down for this very purpose because I've seen the oppression of my people. So the decree to enslave and the enforcement of it was by Pharaoh, who worked through his taskmasters, which were pictures of the commandments of the law. The taskmasters were pictures of the commandments of the law, because it is through them that Pharaoh is oppressing God's people. And that means God has brought the understanding of sin through the law. His taskmaster. For by the law, Paul says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that combination of sin and law brings bondage. And that's why Paul in Galatians 5, I think, says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Do not be entangled again by the yoke of slavery, by the yoke of bondage, which is the law. And so the angel of the Lord who have to come in the flesh, in the incarnation, and deliver his people, and to all intents and purposes, deliver his people from himself, because he's the judge. Christ is the one who justifies and also condemns because all sin is committed against God. And by God and from God, we have to be delivered. 
We have sinned against God and by God. And from God, we have to be delivered. God has to deliver us from himself. Because he said in Isaiah, no one can deliver from my hands. There's no one, which means there's nothing that you and I can do to justify ourselves. No one can deliver themselves from God's hand. God himself has to deliver us. So that's why Christ came. So Moses has been called and appointed as a deliverer of God's people. The Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's house as an adopted son, the Moses who was acquainted with the house and ways of Pharaoh, Moses knew the going in and out of Pharaoh because he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And that looking to the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God, who was from God and was raised in the house of God for the purpose of our salvation. And that speaking to the qualifications of the God-appointed mediator of salvation, that he must be from God. The Savior has to be from God. He has to be from the house of God. He has to descend from God. And so to say, this is not the work of just anybody, not an angel, not the Pope, not yourself, not one has to be qualified in a particular way. And that qualification is only met in the person of Christ Jesus. But Moses has objections to his commission, to his mission, because God is teaching us something by the objections that he is causing Moses to raise. Moses does not want to do it. And Moses is right. Because at the human level, salvation is impossible with man. There's no man who can go and deliver other men from their sins. Salvation is impossible with men. Also, Moses bears the testimony of being a type of the law. He carries the testimony of the law. And he is saying, the law is unwilling to deliver a sinner from bondage. The law does not want to deliver a sinner from bondage because it can't. So Moses says, no, I don't want to do it. But at this point, Moses will go to Pharaoh, not as a type of the law, but as a type of Christ. Because it is only Christ who delivers and that will take us to Exodus chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, Moses has objections. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. The context is Moses has to go and speak to the elders of the children of Israel about the burning bush experience and what God has told him to do. So Moses is still trying to find a way of escape from this mission. He says, if I go and tell the elders of Israel about your mission and call, 
What will happen if they will not believe me or listen to my voice? See that Moses anticipated that the people would not want to hear the testimony of Moses, the testimony of the law about Christ. Because Moses is going to testify to the people of Israel about Christ and he anticipates some objections from them. He bears witness of Christ to the people, but the people will not listen. This is a larger anticipation of the coming of Christ later because the very people of Israel are not going to listen the testimony of Moses about Jesus, just as a lot of preachers, reformed preachers, still continue to want to put us under the law when we've come to Christ. They are not listening to the testimony of Moses. Moses says, I'm going to bear witness about Christ, and the people are not going to listen. Let's hear this from John 5. John 5, verse 45 to 47. I think we're going to come back to this text later on when Jesus talks about his witness. John 5, 45. Jesus says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Jews are not believing Jesus. And yet they claim to believe Moses. They claim to believe the law and its writing. And Jesus says, well, no. If you truly were believing what Moses was saying, then you would believe me because all those writings were talking about me. So when we go to Exodus and we hear about Pharaoh, we have to see Jesus in them. Or else we are just doing the same thing as the Jews. Let's go back to Exodus 4 verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? We have a very good message. If you could stick around, we have a lot of wonderful nuggets to glean today. The Lord opened a lot of wonderful things that you have to hear. Verse 2, Exodus 4. So the Lord said to him, what is, what is that in your hand? Like the angel of the Lord did not know what Moses had in his hands. What is it that you have in your hands, Moses? And Moses said, a rod. Moses already has a rod in his hands for beating things up. Don't miss that. It is for a gospel testimony because this is the same rod that will later find its way into the Ark of the Covenant, the same rod that would be used to smite the rock at the waters of Meribah and water gushed out. It is the same rod. Verse 3, and he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Moses was not a snake charmer. <laughs> he ran away for dear life. The Lord told Moses, 
to cast the rod on the ground and became a serpent. And Moses was not too amused by that. So he fled. <laughs> he fled. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So God says, you are going to perform some miracles to authenticate your message that I appeared to you. And here is miracle exhibit number one, the rod into a serpent. And here is miracle exhibit number two, verse six and seven. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and he drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So Moses, these are your tools to authenticate or validate your assignment, to validate your message. But just in case the two are not enough to persuade them here is another sign for you, verse 8 and 9. Then it will be, then it will be if they do not believe you. Nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. That's crazy. The people are going to need a lot of signs for them to be convinced of their salvation from bondage. They need these signs. And remember when Jesus came, the Jews were seeking for a sign from him, because they were thinking of Moses. Moses had given signs to them before the manna, all these miracles that he's going to do in Egypt. And Jesus says, well, you evil and adulterous generation, no sign shall be given to you, but the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In other words, the resurrection, ultimately, Jesus says, that's the sign that I've come from God, that I'm exactly who I say I am. So they have all these signs because of unbelief. Signs are for unbelievers. Even Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, I believe. The signs are for unbelievers. So what is God teaching us here? These signs are proleptic of Christ. In other words, they are anticipating of the same testimony of Christ who came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
though he had come for their salvation, he had come for their deliverance. The miracles of Jesus were the fulfillment of the miracles of Moses towards these people, and yet this still they would not believe. Remember, there are two levels of miracles here. They are the ones first that were directed towards Israel to convince them, miracles to convince them of the message of their salvation. And the ones that were by way of judgment on Egypt, on Pharaoh and Egypt. And so to the testimony of the Lord Jesus with respect to miracles, hear this from the mouth of Peter in Acts 2. In Acts 2, 22 to 23. This is on the day of Pentecost. And Apostle Peter says this, Men of Israel, Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So the miracles of Christ was God authenticating the person of Christ as the Messiah. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And to this very matter, the Lord had said this to the same Jews prior in John 5. Let's go back to John 5, beginning at verse 30 to 36. To the matter of witness, of testimony of the person of Christ. The Lord said, John 5, 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Hear the language of the Father who sent me. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. He has sent to John, and that's John the Baptist. They went to ask John if John was the, was the Christ, was the Messiah. And John said, no, I'm not the Christ. He has sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John, representing the law also, the law and the prophets, he is born witness to the truth. Yet, I do not receive testimony from men. But I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus is saying the testimony of the law and the prophets is not that important to him. The ultimate testimony comes from God. Verse 35. He was the burning and shining lamp. 
that is John. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, the burning and shining lamp. Jesus is saying he was like a kerosene lamp. A kerosene lamp that has to be carried in someone's hand. But I, I'm not that kind of light. I'm not the kind of light that is carried around. I have light in myself, light that cannot be put out. Verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Christ saying, the testimony of the Father in and through him is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. So the works that Christ did were to authenticate him as God's savior of his people, just as Moses before him. So these signs were not for these preachers to start their healing and deliverance ministries. That's not the idea. That's not the understanding. They were for the authentication, authentication of the person of Christ. So looking at the miracles of Moses towards Israel, they were preaching Christ, but in reverse order. Number one, let's go to the road of Moses. The Lord of Moses turned into a serpent and will be later the one to swallow the serpents of Pharaoh's magicians. The serpents of Pharaoh were voodoo serpents. Serpents that carried the testimony of the devil. They carried the testimony of lies of miracles to dazzle. The testimony of a false gospel. But we're swallowed up by this rod turned serpent of Moses. The magicians of Pharaoh were pictures of the false gospel preachers who also pause as angels of light, ministers of righteousness, and yet teach a false gospel. But whatever the devil and his minions and whatever they bring shall all be swallowed up by the power of Christ. But this rod of Moses is the one that also, as I said, God commanded Moses to use to strike the rock at Meribah and cause the water to come out to gash out and the people drank. And that rock that was smitten, we know that it was a picture of Christ from whom the waters of salvation in a desert place have flowed, have come. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, teaching in the book of John, the water is the Holy Spirit that he gives, but it's given in the context of him being smitten by the rod of Moses. So the rod of Moses represented 
the law of Moses by which Christ was smitten to cause our salvation. It also represented the power, even the wrath of God that is expressed in the law. Because when the Christ has been smitten by the wrath of God, according to Isaiah 53, he was smitten of God. Salvation comes. When the Christ has been smitten, salvation has to come. The waters of salvation have to flow. But the Christ cannot be smitten twice. That is why Moses got in trouble for smiting the rock twice. Because when Christ has been smitten once, that is enough to cause all salvation. Number two. If the Christ has been smitten, there must always be a testimony of his death and resurrection. And therein comes miracle number two. Moses put his hand into his bosom and it came out white. Leprosy as snow. And leprosy is a picture of sin. And then when he took it out, it was restored. And that is the theology of the death of Christ. He died in condemnation because of our sins that were imputed the sins that are in the picture of the leprosy. Moses did not have leprosy. But God showed it to him that this is the matter. Because as we go into Exodus and Leviticus, God is going to develop that teaching more on leprosy. But was raised without any guilt of sin. So when he took it out, it had no leprosy. Christ, when he resurrected, he had no judgment of sin on him because he made full payment for all our sins that were imputed to him. And if these were not enough, God said, let me give you more testimony of Christ. Get some water from the river. Get some water from the Nile. Exodus 9. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. Pay attention to these words. Pour, get water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So Moses also came to his people. How? By water and blood. He came by water and blood. The water from the river and poured it on dry ground and it became blood. The dry ground did not become wet. It became blood. The water of salvation, when it has been poured on dry ground, on parched ground, it becomes blood. Speaking to the shedding of the blood of Christ, we John said in First John 5, First John 5, 6 to 8. John 5, 6 to 8. This is he who came by water and blood. 
This is who? This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. That's the testimony of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, who is represented by the Word and the Holy Spirit. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one to the testimony of Christ. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Christ. Moses brought water and turned it into blood. Christ came with water and blood as a fulfillment of what was happening in Egypt. But Moses still has objections. He is trying to find a loophole so that he may not get involved in this mission. Verse 10, let's go back to Exodus 4. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses says, Come on, God. Come on, Lord. I do not speak well. I stammer. I stutter. My speech is impaired. I may have a DHD. I don't know. A DHD. I'm just challenged. I have a lot of issues. <laughs> I'm not qualified for this job. Get someone who speaks well. Someone who has a PhD in communication. Someone who knows public relations. But not me. I am very slow of speech. My poor form of speech will get in the way of preaching the gospel. And many think of this matter this way, unfortunately. That one cannot preach or tell the truth on Christ because they do not speak well. I have a limitation in this business because I preach the gospel in a second language. English is a second language to me. But that does not stop God from giving me the understanding of his truth. Nothing gets in the way of God's message to his people. Let us hear God's response to that. Verse 11. So the Lord said to him, to Moses, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Ask that to a lot of churches. Have not I the Lord? God makes a claim that many in the church will not accept. They would not accept that such deformities would come from the work of God. The God who is good and is love. Just like the man who was born blind in John 9. The disciples of the Lord came to him and said, Well, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be born blind. 
And Jesus says, neither him nor his parents. He did not sin to cause his blindness and neither did the parents. This happened to him so that God will be glorified. So many not understanding the sovereignty of God who attribute these things to the devil. But God says, no. But the bad, the mute, the deaf, the blind, and any such deformities, and even the seeing, all that which we deem to be good, the mute, the deaf, the blind physically and spiritually, the seeing physically and spiritually, God says, I do all those things. God says, I am responsible for the very things that you think the devil is doing. Oh, that's an offense. (laughs) That's a huge offense. I do all those things. Oh, but if you say that, you make God the author of sin. (laughs) That is the objection. It's a foolish objection. Here, verse 12, let's keep going, Exodus chapter 4. Now, therefore go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses will go, but God will be with him and he will be with his mouth and teach him what to say. It is actually a funny statement to me. I'll be with your mouth. (laughs) I'll be with your mouth. I like that promise from God that the matter of my speech about Christ is not in my ability or my learning, but that he has my mouth and he teaches me what to say about his son. This is the truth about the matter of teaching and speaking and understanding the gospel unless God is doing these things. Only foolishness comes out. Unless God is doing these things, no one can tell the truth on Christ. But Moses still is not persuaded. He has yet another objection. Verse 18, but he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Please send someone else. Not me. I do not want to go. My free will says I do not want to and I will resist you. But Moses is not arguing with the governor of Ohio. He is not arguing with the president of the United States. He is arguing with God, with the king of glory who created and sustains all things. And he is saying I am not fit for this errand. Leave me alone Send someone else who is more fitting than me. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So the Lord was not pleased with Moses' arguments against the commission. And he is now showing Moses just how sovereign he is 
over things, over matters of speech, both good and bad, and even tells him about his brother Aaron and says, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. Well, how do you know about Aaron? (laughs) You have never talked to Aaron. What is that saying? God is showing us some serious intimacy that he has with our affairs. Aaron had never talked to God. And yet God says, oh yeah, isn't Aaron your brother, a Levite? And I know also he speaks well. I have listened to his talking, his speech. So that should sweeten the deal for Moses. When we meet with people who are favorably disposed to us, it is by God working it in their hearts to be nice and kind to us. It's God doing it, even with strangers. He's behind it all. Verse 15. Now I shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and he shall be to him as God, and he shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So this is what will happen. Moses shall tell his older brother Aaron all the words that God has spoken to him about the mission and the reason for it. And God would be with their mouths to give them both the words and the wisdom to speak and he would teach them both on what they should do. But Aaron, being the one with the gift of speaking, would be the spokesman to the people. Aaron is the one who is going to do the talking. He also shall be the one to speak for Moses to Pharaoh. And in that God is telling us that Moses is now a type of God. Moses is now a type of God the Father and Aaron becomes the mediator for Moses, a type of Christ who is able to talk who is able to intercede, who speaks the words of Moses, as Christ is he who mediates and speaks the words of God on behalf of his people to God. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by one who is son. That is the proper translation. He has spoken to us by one who is son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God now has spoken to us not by Moses, not by Aaron, And that to say, not by the law and not by the prophets, he has made his final speech on anything that needs to be known about God, about salvation by one who is son, who is Christ Jesus. God has made his final speech in Christ. 
and he turned off the mic. So the preachers and people who say they have some extra revelation from God, they're making it up. Because God has spoken everything that he needs to be known by his son, by Christ Jesus. So if you want to understand God's speech, you have to understand Christ. Verse 18, Moses begins to prepare to go to Egypt. Verse 18, back to Exodus 4. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Moses goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, the high priest of Midian, a type of Christ, and tells him of his mission. He says, I want to go back to my brethren who are in Egypt and check on their welfare. And that is the picture of Christ leaving the Father to come and visit his people here by way of the incarnation and says, let me go and see my brethren and see whether they are still alive, whether they have been condemned or died of sin. Let me go. That's Jesus speaking to the Father. Let me go to Egypt and check on my brethren and see if they are alive. And if they are dead, I'm going to give them life. <laughs> and Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And that to say, he did not object to the mission. And that to say, I am in agreement. Go in peace says, I'm in agreement with the mission. I will not hold you back. I will not stand in the way of your mission. I wish you success. And that was God the Father's blessing on the Lord Jesus as he embarked on the mission of our salvation. Go in peace and accomplish the redemption of your people. Go in peace. That's the blessing of the Father on the Son as he came this way to do our salvation. It had the blessing of God. The mission of Christ had the blessing of God. And so it could never fail. It could never fail. Verse 19 and 20. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So the Lord visits Midian. He knows where Moses is and tells him that it was safe for him to go back to Egypt for all the men that sought his life were dead. And so Moses packed up his family and his goods and set them on a donkey and with his rod set off back to Egypt. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, 
which I've put in your hand, but I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God says, when you get back to Egypt, perform those miracles before Pharaoh, but this is what I'll do. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. I have a question. Why harden his heart when you want him to let the people go? Should you not make it easy? Should you not give Pharaoh an incentive? Put some money, give Pharaoh some gold so that he may expedite the freedom of your people. This is the God that people don't know about. And when we tell people that the God of the Bible does such things, they come and say, so are you saying God is the author of sin? God is the author of evil? And that is a foolish question. It's a foolish objection. It is a statement of unbelief. God gave a clear command to Pharaoh to let his people go. But the same God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go. And yet he makes Pharaoh responsible. He makes Pharaoh accountable to do something that he could not do. God makes man responsible for things that he caused them to do. He makes them responsible for their actions, even though he causes them to do it. I know it's offensive. People don't accept it, but it's in the text. And that is say, human responsibility does not imply or assume that we have the ability to do the thing that has been commanded. Just because we are responsible does not mean we have the power to do what God has commanded us to do. That's the point. God commands you and I to stop sinning. And yet, he will not give us the power to do it. And yet, we are responsible for our sins. If God wanted to give us the power to not sin, he would give us the power and we would never sin. Just as happened with the holy angels, they did not sin. Not because they were good in themselves, but because God kept them from sinning. So God would command sinners to repent and believe. And yet not grant them the power to believe and repent. Until he makes them willing. As the psalmist says, he shall make them willing in the day of his power. God is he who has to cause us to will and to do for his good pleasure. God talked to Eli about the sin of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli was a Levite. So his sons had access to the temple. And they were doing some foolishness there. They were sleeping with the women in the temple and eating meat that they were not supposed to eat. And Eli heard it. And he spoke to his sons, listen to this, and said, 
This is in 1 Samuel 2.25. It's a text that you should know, you should underline it. 1 Samuel 2.25. This is what Eli said to his sons. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. If you sin against me, God will judge the person, whatever. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. They did not listen to what the father was telling them not to do. Why? Because the Lord desired to kill them. Because the Lord desired to put them to death. The sons of Eli could not repent because God wanted them dead. He did not desire for them to live. He hardened their hearts not to repent so that he would kill them. And that means the fact that you have repented and come to the knowledge of the gospel means God did not desire for you to be condemned. Because if he did, you would not come. So just because there's a command by God to do something, it does not imply that you and I have the power to do it. And God is righteous in doing all these things that offend, that offend a lot of people who hold to a false thinking about him. We have to change our idea of who God is. But we'll develop this matter. The next few messages, we have a lot to talk about this matter. But let's go back to Exodus 4.22. Now we're actually going to the beautiful things about Christ. Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, that says the Lord Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may save me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I'll kill your son, your firstborn. And that's the title of our message. God tells Moses what he will deliver to Pharaoh as of first importance. Israel is my son, my firstborn. This one whom you have in bondage is my son, not the last born, but my firstborn. You are holding my son in bondage and you should let him go that he may save me. God desires for the salvation of his people. And that is a strange way of phrasing the command to let Israel go. God is raising the stakes for Pharaoh and says, you are holding someone in bondage who is my firstborn and I'll draw blood for him. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. We have to work some gospel understanding here if we shall understand what is being said. God has given a command to Pharaoh to let his people 
go. And yet he will cause Pharaoh to not let his people go. And then he tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, the people that you are holding are collectively my son, my firstborn. And the firstborn has the right of inheritance. I want my son to be free that he may save me. But if you do not let him go, I shall kill your son, your firstborn. Not the middle one, not the lastborn, but your firstborn. So what do we see? We see the tale of two sons. Israel, the son of God, and the son of Pharaoh both as firstborns. The son of God is in bondage and must be set free or else the son of Pharaoh dies. What is God saying? He is saying the same thing with a play of words. God is giving us the condition that will have to be met, that needs to be met if his people must be set free. There's a condition that has to be met. If his people must be set free. The reason why he's hardening the hearts, the heart of Pharaoh. But we need to define who is the firstborn of God. Colossians 1. Let's go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Paul says, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So the firstborn of God is Christ. Because he has all the preeminence. That's the idea of being firstborn. Christ has all the preeminence. So Christ is the one who is in the picture of Israel. We have taught what that means before. With respect to the matter of the preeminence of Christ, we have a message that is titled The Preeminence of Christ. It's a good message. You can go and find it on someone audio. So there's a parallel that God is creating for us to understand the unfolding of the matter of the theology of salvation. God has a firstborn son, and so does Pharaoh. And if the people of God are to be set free, it is going to happen when God kills the firstborn of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a type of God the Father. It is he who has a son who also must die in the picture of Christ for God's people to be set free. If this firstborn of Pharaoh is not dead, then Israel is not getting out of bondage. So we shall see that all the miracles and judgments against Pharaoh will not cause him to set the people free 
all the miracles that Moses and Aaron are going to do are not going to set the people free until the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh. <laughs> Those miracles are not the basis of your salvation. It is only at the death of the firstborn that people are set free on the Passover. Just as in the book of Numbers, in the city of refuge, the one who had sought refuge could only be set free on the day that the high priest who was anointed with oil died. So God is connecting your salvation and freedom from judgment to the death of Christ, to the death of the firstborn. How do you know you are saved? How do you know it is good between you and God? Because the firstborn died. The firstborn of Pharaoh died in the picture of Christ. So the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh and those of the Egyptians were looking to the death of Christ. We're preaching the death of Christ, who is the true firstborn of God, who is in the place or being played by the children of Israel in Egypt. Let's get some more understanding here. This is a point that I'm going to keep developing all the way to the Passover. But there's just way too much wonderful testimony to it. The bondage of the elect translates to the bondage or oppression of Christ. This is a very important point. The people who are in bondage in Egypt are God's people. And yet God comes and says, this is my son that you are holding in slavery. So there's union and identity with Christ, with these people. If you still remember on the road to Damascus, when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus came and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a union. So that is another vantage point to understand God's work in salvation. The matter of union and identity with Christ. And remember also, that Christ Jesus is called Israel. Christ Jesus is called Israel. In Hosea 1, sorry, Hosea 11, verse 1. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And yet when Jesus was born, and Herod was out to kill him, Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt to fulfill this very text which means God was hiding the testimony of Christ in the experience of Israel. Just as Israel was in the wilderness, Christ also has to go in the wilderness to fulfill the wilderness experience of the old Israel. So the imprisonment of God's people is the imprisonment of Christ and the freedom of Christ is also 
the freedom of those that are in him. The one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of union, not because you woke up on the right side of the bed and you thought you are a better person today than you were last week. That's not the basis of your freedom. Your freedom is in union and identity with Christ and what he has done. So the firstborn of Pharaoh is a picture of Christ. For this reason, Pharaoh's heart has to be hardened and will not let the people go as soon, sorry, to drive us to the death of his son. Pharaoh's heart has to be hardened and will not let the people go so that God will drive us to the death of his firstborn. That's the point. That's the reason for the hardening. And as soon as that happens, Pharaoh gives the command to get the children of Israel out of Egypt at night. He gets up out of bed, out of his waterbed, if they had them then. <laughs> and says, now the condition of the salvation of God's people has been met. The firstborn has died. He goes running to Moses in the thick of the night and say, let the people go. But the son has died. The son, the firstborn, had died in the Passover given and the condition of the freedom has thus been met. Let me say this again in relation to that. Because a lot of people have problems with assurance of salvation. A lot of professing Christians have a problem with assurance of salvation. And this is the reason. Because they don't understand the condition of freedom. The condition of freedom from God's judgment is not about your performance. It's not about you stopping sinning or starting this. The question and the condition is, has the son of Pharaoh died? The first one. Has Christ died? Has the Passover been given? Okay? So if the firstborn of Pharaoh has died, then the people must be set free. They must be set free. And religion does not know this. That is why the condition of salvation of the sinner, they're clueless. And as I said, we expound this matter a whole lot more because I don't think I've never had anybody bring this kind of understanding from the matter of Pharaoh's son. You have understanding of the Passover. But the Passover is connected and happens in the context of the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh. They explain one another. The picture of the death of the firstborn, the qualifications of it, is what you find in the Passover lamb, which we shall also expound. Okay? So we don't want to do too much character assassination when you're dealing with types because you do a lot of character assassination to the point that you miss God's point. Okay, God is not really interested 
in telling us about the heart of Pharaoh necessarily, but he's preaching something bigger than Pharaoh. Verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. This is with Moses leaving Midian. And that is a very strange thing that happened there. How did we get to this? Given everything that we have had in the conversation between God and Moses. I thought we were all ready for the mission and agreed on the details. No. From nowhere, God wants to kill Moses. What happens then if Moses is killed? Do we start from scratch with the story or look for another deliverer? No, not at all. God is developing and qualifying his statement about the killing of the firstborn that happens immediately after the statement of the killing of the firstborn. Remember, Moses is also a type of Christ. So God declares what he means to do with Christ in the bigger unfolding story of salvation by threatening to kill Moses. And that to say the Christ must die. And God is he who kill him. As God is the one who killed the firstborn of Pharaoh. And so if we should be hearing about our salvation, it has to talk a lot about death, death, the death of the firstborn. In much of the biblical teaching from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, there's just way too much death. Death in the matter of sacrifice. Death in the matter of atonement. And so God is preparing us here to the knowledge that Christ, when he comes, he's going to be the one to die for the salvation of his people. So he drops the nugget there and he keeps going. Verse 25 and 26. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. But how did we get to this point? It feels to me like we missed two whole chapters. No, we did not. <laughs> we are exactly where we need to be. God gets Moses in trouble for not circumcising his son. But since when did this become such an agent matter in the matter of salvation? Since we know that much of Israel had not been circumcising for almost 400 years according to the account of Joshua. That's why Joshua, when they came out and were getting to go, getting ready to go into the promised land, he circumcised the men of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. You still remember we have a message on that. And where on earth did a Gentile woman, Zipporah, know anything about the need of circumcision of God's people? Because she's the one who did the circumcision. Where did she get that from? Answer. From God. <laughs> God was preaching Christ. See 
that Zipporah called Moses a husband of blood. You are a husband of blood to me, says a gentle woman, a gentle bride. And Zipporah credits the matter of blood and circumcision to Moses. Moses, a type of Christ, as he gets ready to deliver God's people from bondage. And so that, again, gives us another vantage point about the work of Christ through Moses and Moses testifying of Christ. Christ is the husband of blood. Christ is the husband of blood because it is he who does the work of circumcision. Christ is the one who circumcises God's people as all those who were going in the promised land were circumcised by Joshua, who was the type of Christ. Colossians 2.11 In him we were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now that's the fulfillment of it at the spiritual level by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So God is not just circumcising to enjoy the spilling of blood, but he is doing the circumcision, looking to the circumcision by Christ Jesus. Verse 27 of Exodus, we are almost getting done, okay? Hang in there. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Did I say verse 27? Verse 27 of Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. See that Aaron has no objections, unlike his brother. He just follows instructions without any objections. Yeah? And that fits him very well as a type of Christ. Verse 28 to 31. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on the affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. So Moses and Aaron went to the elders of the children of Israel and spoke to them and performed the miracles and the people believed. And the apostle John says this about the people of Israel after they saw the miracles of Jesus. And this is in John 2, 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because unlike Moses and Aaron, he knew what was in the hearts of men. He did not need anyone to tell him about what was in the hearts of men. He knew that they were believing not on account of regeneration, but because of the signs. So, as with Israel of old, many believed in his name. 
on account of the miracles. And believing on account of miracles does not necessarily mean that one has been born again. It does not mean that one has believed unto salvation. Because we know that these same people who had said they believed Moses, they caused him much trouble because of their unbelief. And they ended up perishing in the desert. They did. They perished in the wilderness because of unbelief which is the subject of the book of Hebrews. They could not enter into God's wrath because of unbelief. But we want to close our teaching. We want to close our teaching by revisiting Exodus 4, verse 19. Let's revisit Exodus 4, verse 19. Moses said, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. God coming to speak with Moses in Midian came with that message. It's a strange message. He said, all the men who sought your life on account of the Egyptian that you killed, the Egyptian that you murdered, they are dead. After Moses had committed murder, Pharaoh sought to kill him. And so he sought asylum in Midian. That's how he got to be with Jethro. Yet God knew about the incident and did not rebuke Moses for it. So it has to be a gospel matter. But this is what happened in Egypt when Moses had fled to Midian. Let's backtrack to Exodus 2 verse 23. Exodus 2.23, Moses says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So why this detail? Why this detail of Moses running away from Egypt, Pharaoh seeking to kill Moses? And Moses, going back to Egypt, Matthew 2, 19 to 21. Matthew 2, 19 to 21. You know the story. We talked about it in our first message in Exodus 1 and 2. But hear this. Here's the connection. I purposefully did not comment on it then because I wanted to bring it in this message. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So what do we see? Pharaoh seeks the death of Moses. Moses flees and Pharaoh dies. Herod seeks the life of Christ. Christ flees and Herod dies. God appears to Moses and says, guess what? It is safe now to return to Egypt for those who sought your life are dead. 
And God in Matthew 2 comes by his angel and says the same about Jesus. Those who sought the life of the child are dead. That is the fulfillment of it. But there's more. But there's more in respect of Moses. Moses has committed murder and must die. That's why Pharaoh wants to kill him. Pharaoh is a type of God and he demands the death of every murderer. But Moses escapes. Because according to God, all those who sought his life were dead. And when Moses escaped, he went to the priest of Midian, a mediator. When you escape from sin, where do you run? You run to Christ, who is the mediator. That's why he ran to Midian, to the priest of Midian who is a type of Christ that is telling you that a sinner, when they've committed sin, they run to Christ. You only run to the one who has the title of priest. And that's Christ Jesus. But Moses escapes. God says, the ones who sought your life are dead. Who killed them? God did. God killed these people so that he would continue with his mission, continue with preaching of the gospel. Moses is untouchable. Even though he's a murderer, he is untouchable. And what is God saying to Moses? Those that sought your life are dead. Those that sought your life are dead. If you hear anything today, you have to understand this. Those that sought your life are dead. That was a statement of salvation. Who are they? Who are these that sought his life? Who are they who sought your life? It is the law. It is the law and it, and its commandments. It is sin. It is death. It is condemnation. Those are the things that sought for your life, for you to be condemned. And God says, those things that sought for your condemnation are dead. Yes, the law is dead. The law sought for your condemnation because you are a sinner. You have died to sin because of Christ. The law that condemns is dead. The Pharaoh who condemned through his taskmasters is dead. And God said this through Paul. For I, through the law, die to the law that I might live to God. Something has to die. Your relationship to the law has to die. It has to come to the end. Because as long as it lives, the law will always seek your death because you're a sinner. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be made to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should be, that we should bear fruit unto God. The believer is dead to the law. We never compromise on this matter. I don't care what confession of faith people bring to me. We never agree on this one. And I'm not going to repent. The believer is dead 
to the law. Those that sought my life have died. That's the testimony of Christ. That's the gospel declaration, the law that sought our condemnation. God called it for Moses and called it for us and said, those that sought your life are dead. Is that the gospel that preachers are preaching? Is that the gospel that you're hearing? Or you're hearing about progressive sanctification, the law as the rule of life for the redeemed? God says, no, that is not true. <laughs> They're dead. I'm going to end this way by way of conclusion. You have to keep following the Exodus testimony, gospel testimony. We have some amazing gospel nuggets from this chapter and the following chapter. Just crazy amount of gospel testimony that God has put there. But this is where we are. We have expounded on the identity and mission of the angel of the Lord who is Christ Jesus, which was the redemption of his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, from the bondage of sin, death, and condemnation. That's what he came to do because of the misery that his people have gone through because of these things. And we've defined Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron Define Pharaoh as a type of God the Father, the sovereign one. Define Moses as a picture of Christ and also as a type of God. And Aaron as a picture of Christ. And we'll continue to define them as God keeps shifting the camera lenses to keep moving the story of Christ. Don't get fixated on one testimony of Moses. God is constantly moving the camera. The details of the text is what defines what Moses or Aaron or anybody is in that story. So Moses, a type of Christ commissioned by God in the deliverance of his people. But he also is a type of God when he gets partnered with his brother Aaron. Okay, But in this, God tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh that he has to let his firstborn son, Israel, to go to be set free. Or else God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn. And in this, he is telling us, he is stating the condition that has to be met for sinners like you and me to be set free, of how sinners are set free from those things that have brought them under slavery. And that thing is the death of the firstborn, God's own firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the condition of your freedom. And Miss Zipporah comes and calls Moses a husband of blood, and that continues to build the resume of Moses as a type of Christ. And then, of course, the declaration by God of the death of all the men who sought to kill him, and even ourselves, dead. The gospel pictures are many, and they are staggering. And we have to learn to move with the flow of the story, 
the constant changing of the scenes that we may see them but never miss the the Christ. Always keep your eyes on Christ Jesus. Otherwise, if you don't have Christ in the picture, you'll never be able to see anything from the story. Okay? But remember this, as I close. The gospel testimony from all of this is that those who sought after your life are what? They are dead. Those that sought for your life are dead and that was God's own declaration to say no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a beautiful gospel. If we preach it as the gospel, we thank the Lord for revealing the understanding. Okay? We are done. We are done. We are done. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's go and ask for his blessing and thank him for all the wonderful teaching. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again before your throne to honor you for the testimony of Christ in the story of Egypt, of Moses and Pharaoh, your people being set free by the one that you appointed for this work, the Lord Jesus Christ, and making a declaration at the end that those who sought our life, those who sought for our destruction, for our condemnation, they are all dead. And that you say the commandments of the law have been fully satisfied by the appearing of Christ, and Christ has set them aside in their condemnation because we are now in him. We thank you, Lord, for this blessing, just the beauty of this gospel. We pray that you have blessed your people and also give them grace to come and listen to all these details, for there are many. And Lord, we just honor you. We bless you. Be with your people. Help those who are weak. Help those who are dealing with all kinds of issues of this life. May you continue to encourage them in this truth. We honor you. We glorify you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.